2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt
3: Miller.
4: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros,
2: and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. All right, let's check in with Jim Lowell. He's a chief investment officer at Advisor Investments. Maybe we'll get his Commuting anecdote of the day. But Jim, what are you doing with this market here? We've got nowhere to hide. Bond market, I got crushed. Equity markets, I'm near bear market territory. What are you doing? Well, we're
5: taking a disciplined, diversified course. Uh, We know that uh, bear markets are, are not unusual, even though this one feels unusual given the lack of volatility that we saw in the market over the past several years. Um, We know that uh, every downturn feels as if the uh, current conditions and inevitable outcome will be different. We don't think they will be, but we do think we're in for a protracted period of time where investors' nerves will be tested, and they'll need to stay focused on their long-term investment goals rather than the near-term price disruptions, which, of course, are, are alarming uh, made excessively so, not just due, due to the return of volatility, but of course due to the general geopolitical state of the world, which feels as if things have become more unhinged than usual.
4: And, you know, I'm looking up at uh, uh, Bloomberg surveillance on on television right now, Jim. We have Bob Prince on. He's the co-chief investment officer at Bridgewater, um, one of the biggest hedge funds, if not the biggest hedge fund in the country. He says that this inflation is like the 70s again. He says the U.S. is headed towards a stagflation, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1970s. And there was a a while when, um, you know, big investors, um, super rich guys were saying this is nothing like the 70s. But now it seems to be the common, uh, the consensus. Do you agree? No,
5: uh, I don't agree, and, and I certainly hope that, that he isn't right, because that grinding bear market of 1974 through 1983 was profoundly difficult for anyone who, is, uh, who, anyone who is an investor, whether they're professional or individual. I would say that I take some measure of comfort in the fact that the vast majority of hedge funds don't seem to deliver on, on what their mandate is. Maybe this time will be different for them the perfect environment for those who have skill sets that enable them to short the market. Um, but those skill sets usually are found wanting in, in terms of the return that they deliver. I do think that uh, we're in for a protracted period of, of inflationary pressure. Um, you know, Ironically, of course, set against the uh, potential for some kind of recession, whether it's a technical recession of two negative quarters of GDP or just an existential recession where businesses and consumers stop spending enough to trigger trigger the kind of uh, recessionary environment where it becomes even more difficult to maneuver. I take some measure of comfort in the fact that while the first quarter obviously was the worst uh, quarter for bonds in 50 years, the bond buffers did not hold. uh, Ever since then, they've been behaving relatively reasonably in terms of uh, on down days, giving us that defensiveness that we we aim to achieve from them in our portfolios, and on up days, uh, letting the market uh, run where it runs on the equity side. So I think we're getting to a, a more defensible position in terms of asset allocation, but we're not out of the woods yet. I think we've got considerable downward pressure to have to be able to manage through
2: All right, Jim, thanks so much uh, for checking in with us. We appreciate that. Jim Lowell, Chief Investment Officer for Advisor Investments. Uh, and the equities, uh, led by Nasdaq, off three and a half percent. Again, some tough economic data, as Greg was pointing out. Also, Snap down forty percent on some uh, cautious outlook. Bringing all the other social media names down with. It. I'm looking at Alphabet here, down eight uh, percent as well. So we want to talk tech. I'm going to kind of bring it out a little bit and and not just focus on Snap, but really on the whole tech space here and what we're seeing out there, uh, a lot of carnage. Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, uh, has had a very constructive view on a tech space for a long time, has been right. Dan, as we step back here, let's step back a little bit just from Snap and we, we, we can talk about Snap and what their um, <clears throat> Mr. Spiegel's comments mean for the space, but how are you looking at tech here and what we're seeing in the in the pullback in these names?
7: Look, I think it's just indiscriminate in selling regardless of where the companies play, enterprise, cyber, cloud, consumer ad tech. And I think what we're just seeing is just a massive risk off regardless of price. And, and look, when, when tech sells off on a snap warning, that's been one of the more low-quality tech companies the last decade. It just shows just how white-knuckle this is.
4: But, of course... It makes sense if uh you're in a business that relies on advertising revenue and advertisers no longer paying for um your services is this are the broader implications clear to you or do you, does it still feel like a snap um, specific problem
7: look I mean snap they blamed everything except the wind you know in terms of their their warning and and I think it just comes down to one data point clearly we're seeing softness and then that's and that's something that's already baked into these stocks i mean a lot of these names right now are baking in a mild to modest recession already you know our point is you want to stay away from the consumer ad plays but you want to be more focused on enterprise because enterprise is what we believe is holding up strong and that's going to be a pocket of strength you know during this market storm but overall I believe tech is way oversold relative to to what I believe would be a mild recession where in streets baking in much worse.
2: All right, NASDAQ, as you you know, is off 30% from its high. So, I mean, let's start with maybe just the biggest name that I know you cover, uh, Dan, and a, a lot of folks own in their portfolio, which is Apple. How do you think about that kind of a name?
7: Look, I mean, we just did checks last week. And if you look in the supply chain in China, you know, regards we have not with zero COVID in China, I mean, it's tracking slightly better than expectations so far. And and I think it just shows that pockets of demand across the board are holding up better than expected. And I think Apple's a good example, one where the valuation here is basically discounting 30 to 40 percent, you know, of, of demand that goes away. And which we disagree with, and that's why I think you have to separate. You can't treat every company equally. I think you look at names like Apple, Microsoft, the cloud theme in terms of ways to play Google as well as Amazon, cybersecurity, and I, I think that's – we are going to see just more of a have and have-nots in tech, and I think this is just a perfect example It's playing out. But again, good news is going to be perceived as bad news. Bad news is going to be perceived as worse news. That's just a cycle that we're in right now.
4: If we look at your universe of coverage, Dan, you know, not just Tesla and Apple, but also, I guess, um, Palo Alto, uh, Ziff Davis, Rivian, um, some of the names seemed like they would be very poorly affected by worsening relationship with China. Others wouldn't be affected. How do you see um, your universe of stocks if U.S.-China relationships get worse?
7: Look, I think that's the black swan event, right? And, and, of course, even what we've seen this week, there's just worries about tensions there as well as Taiwan. And, look, at China, that continues to right now be the dark cloud over tech, especially when it comes to Apple, when it comes to Tesla, the supply chain, which is really key across the board in terms of chips. But that's also why I believe when it comes to software, whether it's cloud, whether it's cybersecurity, those are much more insulated, and I think more and more we're going to see these enterprise names that are going to continue to outperform. You know, as of right now there's just worries about what's going on. I think Snap just inflamed those because of also the nature of just miss four weeks after they gave guidance to basically just take away guidance, say it's a disaster, and give minimal reasoning around that. I mean, that I think that's really what scared investors here.
2: You know, the, you mentioned, you know, cybersecurity, cloud is two of the areas, the stronger areas uh, within the whole tech substack. stack. Uh, Dan, what are those companies saying about maybe customer demand? Is there anything that a recession fears are coming through and maybe their order books at all?
7: Look, so far we haven't seen it. I mean, you've seen some cracks in terms of slower hiring, and I think you'll see Salesforce next week. Talk about strength overall. Europe weakness has been spotty in terms of what we've seen. That's why, Paul, it just keeps coming down to right now, beaked into these stocks, our street numbers coming down by 10 to 15% for 2023. So, if it's anything between a soft landing to even just a, a slight to modest recession, then, te- then stocks today, Texas especially, are way oversold here. And that's why we're just right now in this scenario, of spray chart analysis, just given what we've called you know Rubik's cube macro. And any bad news is just going to get you know exacerbated. And that's what we're seeing today.
4: Any concern about the housing market, Dan? I mean, we've seen really bad numbers today in new home sales, and uh, I'm starting to hear more and more people say this this could turn quickly and be maybe a gray swan that um, people had had difficulty spotting?
7: Well, I I view it, I mean, there's different ways to view it, but I view that that also takes some of the Fed's job, it already takes care of it, right? That would ultimately be less interest rate hikes that you'll see down the road after 50 and 50. You're going to see froth come out of the market, leverages come out of the system. But that's why I do not view this as a dot-com bubble, burst 2.0. I don't look at 08 or 09 see any comparisons. I just view it as a massive overcorrection. Risk is coming out of the system. But again, in the new cycle that we're in, with what we're seeing horrific in Ukraine as well as zero COVID in China, you're just seeing investors, regardless of price, get out of risk assets. All
2: right, Dan, good good overview there from your perspective. We always appreciate getting uh, the big tech call there. Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst uh, at Wedbush Securities, again, calling out... Uh, Some of the stronger areas from Dan's perspective in the tech stack, call it uh, the cloud, which is certainly a big growth area we've heard about for many years, as well as cybersecurity is two of maybe the the stronger areas within uh, the tech spend that he thinks uh, will fare better. And they certainly are on the way down here in terms of relative underperformance, but also on the turn as well. I get about literally
4: 200 pitches from PR. Yep, like flax every day. Okay, I mostly don't ever open even open the emails. That's not very nice. I got one though um, from Lisa Peterson saying like, "Hey, dude, I, I hear you're into bikes. If you want to go to any city and rent a bike." That's a difficult thing to do. Easy with cars, hard with motorcycles. She says, I have a solution for you. Okay. It's called Rider's Share. Nice. And so she pitched me the um, one of the co-founders and the CEO, Guillermo, Guillermo uh, Cornejo, to come on and talk about his business, which I just think is absolutely fascinating. We got him now on the line. Guillermo, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm dreaming big for this company, but you guys are just getting started. Tell us about uh, how you got the idea and how you're executing on it.
3: Thank you. Ridershare, Share, uh, riders-share.com. Started four years ago because I could not afford to buy a motorcycle and I really wanted to ride one. But renting was even more expensive than owning. So I was like, it's time to, you know, bring it peer-to-peer into motorcycle rentals.
4: And so how has that worked out? I noticed that, I just did a quick search around um, where I live in Westchester and I can get everything from a Vespa for like $30 a day to uh, yeah, a Harley like street Clyde for 150, which or actually I think I saw a a Harley fat boy for like 90 bucks, which is a great price. There's a big differentiation in price, but there's a lot of supply out there just going peer to peer. Um, I feel like there's more growth, though, Guillermo. You could get rental uh, companies, dealerships involved. You could go international, get out of the U.S. I mean, what what, what are your plans for the company?
3: Uh, right now, our main focus is to continue to grow that supply. Um, we have thousands of motorcycles, but we have enough demand to support dozens of thousands of motorcycles. And just, and just for the people that don't know... Um, we don't own any of the motorcycles. We use the Airbnb model, basically.
4: But you've got insurance set up, right?
3: Correct. We provide insurance and roadside assistance. We vet the riders. You know, we we basically de-risk the transaction as much as possible.
2: Uh, Guillermo, I'm a big fan of uh, the company Harley Davidson. Ever since it kind of came public, I always follow their quarterly results. And I know one of the challenges for them is getting younger people into the motorcycle uh, activity. Talk to us about how you view that side of the business, the demand side, the, the, the total market size.
3: When I worked in the auto industry, we saw that millennials actually love buying cars when they can afford it. So that's kind of what Ridershare does. We make riding a motorcycle more accessible. So the median age of our user is in the mid 30s. Huh. We're looking to partner with OEMs to get more, you know, more butts on seats.
4: <laughs> yes. Um, you should definitely hook up with, uh, Harley Davidson. One of the cool things about that company, and I'm obviously a huge Ducati fan myself as well, Of course. <laughs> um, both of them are going electric. Harley is already there. Ducati is building the electric bikes for, um, Moto GP. Does this, do you think this is a big game changer? Because there's a lot of kids out there who don't like extremely loud, uh, you know, Fat Bob's with straight pipes. I happen to love that that sound. Fat Bob? The Harley, oh, okay. you know, the classic potato potato potato. It's so loud and <laughs> offensive, which is why I like it. But the kids, you know, are different. Okay. Um, do you think switching to electric is going to be a big difference for the whole motorcycle industry, Guillermo?
3: They're easier to ride because young kids don't know how to shift gears.
2: Oh, uh, true. You Tell don't have that. to worry
3: about main. you don't have to worry about maintenance as much. But electric motorcycles aren't there yet. None of them has the range that a Tesla has. So I think we're still I mean, the technology is there. Somebody needs to come up with a design that has very low drag and very long range.
4: Well, and they're expensive, right? I mean, one of the things you enable people to do is to dip a toe in the water and see if they like it.
3: Absolutely. And because electric motorcycles have very low maintenance costs, we, we can make the rentals even more affordable by using electric bikes.
2: You know, I'm very interested, as I've told you, Matt, in getting a Vespa in my (laughs) middle age. And maybe I can try it out through this thing. You
4: can't. In fact, there's a bunch of Vespas I saw in New Jersey near you, Um, it looks like one guy who has just a whole garage full of scooters. Guillermo, great, great talking to you. Um, and we wish you the best luck. Guillermo Cornejo, their co-founder and CEO of Rider share. Um, and if you are interested in checking out a, a motorcycle or a scooter or anywhere around the country, um, America, that is, you can go ahead and check it out. And Paul, I recommend to you All right. to try, because for me, Um, My first ride on a Vespa was a life-changing event. And I think it's still the most fun way to get around cities is riding a a Vespa or any kind of scooter. Yeah, I think
2: I might have to do this. Go for it. Scooting around uh, Summit, New Jersey. Guillermo, that was good stuff.
4: Jason Greenblatt. He's a senior portfolio manager at American Century Investments. And I want to talk fixed income, um, obviously, with with you, Jason. Um, But I want to start it out from the perspective of the consumer, because we just heard Brian Moynihan on Bloomberg Surveillance saying that the idea that um, Americans have spent their stimmies already is, is the wrong idea. The idea that the consumer is in a difficult place right now, at least from his vantage point as running one of the biggest credit card operations in the country, is just wrong. Um, what do you think about the, the the consumer, especially given the inflation that we're seeing and concerns, little cracks that we're seeing in markets like housing?
8: Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think the, the consumer topic is is certainly... Uh, topical today, whether you, you mentioned Brian Moynihan with Bank of America today, or Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan yesterday talking about the strength of the consumer, we we agree. We think that you know consumers in great shape today. However, what's the question for tomorrow? And we think that we're starting to see cracks. You know, we mentioned Abercrombie and Fitch. Uh, we had Target and Walmart and the shift in in consumer spending. This change from goods to services is certainly having an impact, and inflation is front and center. Rising rates, higher costs, pass-through of of costs that we saw in the first quarter is starting to weigh on consumer demand, and we think that the consumer may be in trouble in the second half of this year.
4: And and where does that hit in fixed income? We were just talking about, um, you know, high-yield problems, cracks starting to show. So um, does it make its way down to investment
8: grade? Investment grade is, is certainly taking a licking year-to-date, right, between rising treasury prices and so, rising treasury yields, I'm sorry, and also credit spreads widening. But we could also say that yields are, are more normalized at this point at 4.5%. Where it starts to to impact um, credit particularly is, is valuations on the equity side become cheaper, so do M and A potentials and leveraging of balance sheets. So we're very worried about what could be coming down the pike in terms of new supply of debt to to either buy back shares and or buy companies from, from company A to company B, whether that's private equity or from financial buyers in, you know, in the um, you know space of company A buying a pure, right. company B.
2: You know, uh, Jason, I just punched in INGO to get the Bloomberg Index browser, and I see the total return for U.S. corporate bonds off negative 13.36% year to date. So you are at American Century, a member of the Global Fixed Income Investment Committee, which sets investment outlooks for the Global Fixed Income Group. Holy cow. What do you tell your teams? What do your teams tell you after a minus thirteen percent first four and a half months of the year?
8: Yeah, yeah, that's a, a fair point there. Um, certainly, growth is slowing. Um, the the Fed is is trying to combat inflation, and you know as, as early as two plus weeks ago, we had Chairman Powell saying they will do what it takes to bring inflation down to two percent. Now we're starting to hear some some rumblings of. Perhaps we'll we'll pause in September. We had Bostick out yesterday talking about September as as maybe a a point where we'll wait and see on the data. As far as the outlook goes, I know recession is certainly on a lot of people's minds. It's certainly a discussion point for us internally. Um, That's not our base case at the moment. I would say we're more in the stagflation camp where we think inflation will remain stubbornly high. It may come off of 8.5%. But it will remain high, and then you have consumer having this negative wealth effect, and so we think growth is slowing. It's gonna it's gonna slow dramatically in our minds in the second half of this year.
4: So, um, I wonder what what you're telling then investors. I mean, you have what 200 billion, 215 billion in assets under management. Um, you've seen obviously market pullbacks of the past, but they're different from this, right? This is a fiscal, a monetary stimulus-driven um, issue. How do investors in fixed income deal with that?
8: Sure. Um, you know, for sure, taking on higher quality, more liquid risk to us makes sense, particularly in the front end. We think that credit spreads and rates have repriced enough where you can start to dip your toes in and, and earn carry to help protect you in the event that rates do rise further. Um, the other area where we've really been focused on are story bonds, bonds that have a catalyst, for example, rising stars, um, bonds that perhaps, you know, are, are a bit more um, immune to, to this rising rate environment. Um, you know, that would be non-cyclical sectors. So we, we think there's reason for to play defense here, but there are opportunities and dislocations that we see that can benefit our clients' portfolios.
2: So in the corporate sector, are there sectors that you guys like at the moment? Um, you know, some people suggested, you know, healthcare or, you know, some of the real tried and true areas of technology, whether maybe some exposure to the cloud or cybersecurity and things like that. How, how do you guys think about the corporate space?
8: Sure. High quality, single A and, and better offers what's perceived to be safe spread. The challenge with that, though, is M&A, and we think that you know, as valuations, as I mentioned before, become cheaper, particularly in, in equities, companies will be more prone to, to lever up and, and perhaps um, issue additional debt at concessions and, and hurt us as bondholders. We'd prefer to be buying these companies after the downgrade, after the event takes place, and we think we can get them at cheaper levels. So we're, we're really not favorable on, on healthcare and tech from an event risk perspective. And, in fact, we're underweight in those two sectors what we like at the moment is high quality highly liquid front-end bonds we think that those offer value here and and they also insulate us a bit from event risk and i'm, I'm talking more particularly in front-end banks that don't have this type of event risk and we'll, we'll benefit from a rising rate environment
4: by the by the way before you uh ran Investment-grade credit at Aberdeen and a distressed debt at RBS. You went to Penn State. Uh, Dan Ives Happy went there Valley. as well. Happy Valley. Is it Beaver Stadium? Yeah.
2: 107000
4: Is there any chance, uh, you know, this year, looking forward to, for example, when you, when you get to play the Ohio State Buckeyes, is it
2: going to be super
4: depressing?
8: Is there any reason to believe in Penn State? <laughs> we, we support them uh, in thick and thin. <laughs> um, for sure, the Nittany Lions uh, always come out and, and leave their heart on the fields, and yeah, they, they lost a lot of players last season, but we'll we'll still support them and think that the the rising stars will. All uh, right, good stuff.
2: Out. Big fan too. Jason Greenboth, the senior portfolio manager, American Century Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at
4: Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.